Welcome to the Psychology of Success. I'm Caden Terry, and each week I help young hustlers actualize their infinite potential by featuring interviews with world-class leaders in business, sports, and health. Now let's get into the Psychology of Success. All right, welcome back to the Psychology of Success. Today I have David Blackham on the show. I'm super excited to get to know him a little bit more. So funny story about how we met. I was serving a mission out here for my church in Seattle, Washington, specifically Bellevue. And I went over to uh, David's house. Uh, he's a member of our church, and we taught him a lesson. And I heard his story about this store that he opened. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I want to learn more about it. So I wrote down your name and saved it so that when I got home, I could reach out and interview you and have you on the show. So you'll be, I think, our 67th, 68th episode of interviewing entrepreneurs and sharing that with all of our young hustlers out there. So I'm excited to get into your story. It'll be awesome. Perfect. Yeah. So, so tell me more about how you got into business. How did you get to where you are today? All right. So when I was in college, when I was your age, I was at BYU and I was a, uh, a music theater major. I was in the young ambassadors and the theater department. And, and I thought that was my dream. And yeah, it was a beautiful dream. <laughs> and, but somewhere, I served a mission in Chicago, in Spanish-speaking Chicago, and when I got back from my mission, I uh, felt like I needed to do something a little bit different. And I went to work for a, uh, a retailer, a men's designer retailer here in the Northwest, and, and the, the company had nine stores in the Northwest in Portland, Seattle, and up and down the I-5 corridor. And I sold for them during... You know, during Christmas and during my summer breaks when I was available, and just kind of put myself through school that way when I was not down at BYU, and I found that I excelled at selling. So I, w- I was a great salesman, and uh, maybe the mission helped with that or something. But usually missionaries make great uh, make great sales. Yeah, I've seen the same grooming as you can sell religion, you can sell anything, and so I was always really successful. And in retail. Everything is driven by sales. Well, in life in general, everything is driven by sales. Most people don't acknowledge that, but you know, if, if you are successful at sales, you can you can do anything. Yeah. So in retail specifically, the way you get people's attention is to become, you know, the number one salesman because then you are you, you're creating sales volume and you're creating something. Yeah. You're getting attention. You're worth your keep. Uh-huh. You know, because you're paying for yourself. How people who come up in retail and don't want to be on the sales floor, don't want to do many nuts and bolts, but just want to sit at the, you know, at the collections of the shows in Milan and and pick outfits without having to do anything to, to lay the groundwork, don't get very far. So you kind of have to prove yourself. Anyway, I was a great salesman, so I was very successful at this uh, men's store that was called Jeffrey. So when I got out of college, I I went to work. Uh, well, I was hired by Marshall Fields in Chicago, which was a big luxury department store there as a trainee. But I got out there and decided uh, the weather's too severe. All my family's in the Northwest, and they wanted me back at Jeffrey Michael, which was this men's operation. So I went to work for them, and I uh, I managed stores for them. I managed three or four of their eight stores and I ended up in Bellevue Square which is their number one store 
and I managed that store for a few years. And then I ultimately became the buyer for the chain. And so I was buying for the chain and then I was running their Bellevue Square store and selling out of the Bellevue Square store all the while maintaining this, this, uh, you know, my spot as the number one sales. And then after about eight years of doing that, they decided they were going to change their concept. And this company was owned by a gentleman who owns Costco and his partners there. And uh, they wanted to have, a, have an operation that they could put in every mall in America. And a designer retail store is, is not something you can just plunk in every B or C mall across the country oh, yeah, and, and put a minimum wage employee working. You know, it's, it's really driven by salespeople who are, can be expensive. So, you know, they wanted to have an operation where it wasn't expensive and appealed to everyone. They can put it everywhere and they could have, you know, hundreds of stores and, and, uh, and yeah, put it everywhere rather than have the eight or nine stores, some of which struggled and some of which were successful. So, so they shut that operation down and they offered me a job that was, you know, running a store, which wasn't really my deal because I, I had, I had, I had higher, you wanted to sell higher aspirations. I wanted to, uh, I wanted to run the operation. Anyway, they were essentially abandoning this better men's business for a moderate mono brand store that was all produced in in China. So, you know, they were going to take, you know, they're going to make everything moderately priced and sell to people. Their concept was sell to men who didn't like to shop. was flawed in the beginning. So, yeah. <laughs> And, uh, and so they were walking away from this designer, Italian-based business, and just abandoning it in lieu of this this other this other concept. Yeah, how did you respond to that? Well, the, the, I think the reason that we have always been successful is because we see opportunity and we take it when a good opportunity arises. And so I had the customers because I been working in the Belby Square store for four or five years and I had the customers. So I knew I had clients. Yeah. I had the contacts at wholesale because I was a buyer for the company. So I had the connection. I had the connections at wholesale, which is another, you know, another challenge for people opening a store. Um, And so it seemed, and I didn't have to worry about competition because they were abandoning that business. So it's not like, the customers from my previous, you know, employment were going to be divided or confused as to where to go because their concept was completely at odds with where I saw it and what we had been doing. And so I had the customers and I had the contacts and it was an end of So we opened a store across the mall from where I had been for a year. No way. And when they opened with their new concept, we opened the same month with our concept. And we built that store ourselves. That fires me up. For like so cool. $60,000, I think. And I mean, I demoed the place myself. We did, we, I mean, we, we laid the tile. We did the ceiling. We, we, we basically bought all the fixturing from the company we had worked for previously because they were just demoing all the stores. They were just 
closing the doors, demoing them, rebuilding them. And, and they had just remodeled our downtown Seattle store a year before they closed down. And so we bought all the fixturing, all the lighting, everything from the downtown Seattle store for some, I don't know, maybe $10,000 yeah. or something. And, and, uh, took it and integrated it into this new store and built it. So, you know, the, the opening expenses were, were minimal outside of a lot of blood, sweat, and tears because we just were able to take all the, all the fixturing and everything from this previous, from my previous incarnation and just integrate it into the ad. And so we opened at the same time and we were profitable within three months. Most startups do are not. No, that is so we do year. Yeah, we just talked about that on our last episode. That yeah. is so rare. So we were profitable immediately. And again, that was because the connection, you know, we had the clients yep. we could sell to and we were able to, to uh, give them product they were used to. And, you know, most people, everyone wants to open a store. Okay. So, you know, everyone wants to have a store. But they don't realize that they can't just walk in and have Donatella sell them product. You know, it's not like you just pick up and say, I'm opening a store. How about selling me? You know, most of these luxury brands are really cautious about who they sell to, and they don't sell to many people at all. What are some of the brands you have here at the store for the listeners? I believe this brand right now is Versace. Um, we also carry Philip Klein, which is a much younger, but much blingier brand. It's based in Milan. He's German. He's the king of Blaine, Google. And we also do some, uh, Neil Barrett. Neil was the original designer for Prada men's back in the day. And now he has his own collection. Uh, we do another Italian collection called Fraudy that no one knows, but it's a beautiful, awesome, more classic product. We do Moschino, which is a kind of a heritage Italian brand as well. Um, so it depends on the season, but right now we're really in love with Versace. So we do a lot of Versace as much as many of their stores. Okay. Okay. Perfect. So like, as you're, you, you open this store, you got all your sign up costs, they're pretty low and you're already profitable after three months. Right. So what, what were the steps after that? How did you scale it? We just kept, uh, we just kept after it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it, it, So I had a vision of where I wanted to be, and I wanted to be more upscale. I, at the time, I had a business partner named Larry, hence the name David Lawrence, and he had worked with me at uh, at my previous company okay. as well. And we re we retired him early into the project, about six years in. Uh -huh. And now my wife and I just run it. Oh, well. but I wanted to take the the concept more luxury. We were already kind of designer, upper moderate, um, it, and it, most of it was European product, but it wasn't, it wasn't full on luxury. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to go full on luxury and my, my partner at the time wanted to take it more modern and be more about discounting and, and that was not where I wanted to be at all. And so we kind of parted ways okay. on, on that front. Um, we also at the time were only men's. So essentially we opened in 94. And this is a fun story. So the company that I had worked for that rebranded and became a new store, a new concept, they called it Logan Drive. Um, they were out of business within a year. So they raised all of this capital. They remodeled nine stores. They, 
you know, they sourced all of this product, you know, um, in China and there was a great deal of fanfare and then they were done. That's who you used to work for? Yes. So it we opened at the same time. Across the real started. No, they were doing business within a year. That far and, and so as they were closing down, they had this big, beautiful downtown Seattle store that they had just put a half a million dollars into building and the landlord had no tenants for this beautiful space. And so they came to us and said, oh, we have this space, you wanna move in? I'm like, yes. And so in 95, we opened in downtown Seattle. Again, it was an opportunity, you know, and you just have to see, my whole thing is if you see an opportunity, you just need to take it. So it's not, you know, people say, well, how do you have this dream? It's like, I didn't have a dream that I woke up one day and said, I wanna have a store. Because it, that wasn't really on my radar because I was successful working for someone else and I enjoyed working for someone else. But then this opportunity arose and it was like, well, I've got to do this. And so then it became my dream. But sometimes, you know, your dream evolves, you know, and you just have to, you know, take the opportunity when it presents itself. So we moved into the downtown Seattle store, which was immense. And and beautiful, and they just spent, you know, a half a million dollars building, which 30 years ago was a lot of money. Yeah. Doesn't build much now, but back then they built a beautiful store. And all I had to do was buy the shelves and the brackets and the fixturing from their liquidators for pennies on the dollar, and I opened that store for $10,000. All I had to do was change the sign. <laughs> you know, so I had David Lawrence signs built to put over the Logan Drive sign. And I bought all the fixturing, which was brand new, from their liquidators. And then we had this beautiful 4,500-square-foot store on 4th and Union, downtown Seattle. How did that feel? Your previous employer, right, you leave them, you take the jump to start your own business, and then you end up buying their old store. <laughs> what was going through your mind? Exciting. It was exhilarating, very affirming. You know that? that Is that scary, not having much business experience beforehand? But taking the, you may have had some, but taking the jump to just go do it on your own must have been so frightening. I know when you're young, you don't think about those things. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, yes. You know, now I would be much more cautious about it. But back then I was just like, I'm going. And, but it made sense then. I, and I keep saying this is super different than someone just waking up and saying, I want to have a store and I'm going to open a store and I don't have customers. No one knows who I am. You know, there's no reputation involved. There's no, there's no history involved, but I'm going to open the door. And then the customers don't come and you can't pay your bills. And, you know, you don't have the luxury of having years to develop this clientele because you need to pay your bills, mm -hmm. you know, because you have to pay for the product that you have sitting in your store. And if you don't do that and that, those bills come due and then you can't pay them and then no one will sell you because you have bad credit. If you don't pay your bills because you can't pay your bills, you know, it snowballs and that's why everyone goes out of business. So, <laughs> so it's, you know, you got to have cash flow. And, and I think the, the biggest, uh, the best thing about my situation is that I had the customers who already knew and loved me uh -huh. and would come to me and buy from me. Yeah. And well, and if you don't have, you know, if you don't have clients, and you're not making sales. It doesn't matter how beautiful your product is. Who are some of his clients that you have working with you that we might know? 
Oh my goodness. Because I remember we went to your house and you're living like across from one of the Seahawks players. Yeah, Jordan Brooks still lives up there with us. He's he's back. He hasn't played much. But uh, there are a lot of Seahawks in the building here. Uh, Russell Wilson was one of our good clients back when he was no one. Back in the pre-Sierra days when he first came here. He also he also lived here at the Bravern and we had a bigger store upstairs at the time. And, uh, and he was just the new QB, but he, oh, yeah. he wasn't Russell Wilson. Okay. Yet. But we helped, uh, we helped style him and make him what he was. And then, was that? then he married Ciara and, <laughs> and she has a people and I was no good to him. Then we lost them. Ciara's people took over. <laughs> but I clothed him so he could get, uh, Ciara's attention. Oh, for sure. That's, that's exactly what I man. Yeah. There are there are funny stories there. What was that like working with him? He was a good guy. He was a good guy. He, he very he's he's a businessman. He's a hustler. He's a hustler. he's a great football player, of course, too. But but he knows the hustle. He, he, yeah, he uh, knows how to leverage a leverage reputation and not uh, and not really have to invest most of his own coin in it. Uh huh. And just keep building it so he is he has done well for himself and mm. and it, I, it was a very deliberate process i think more than just happening without without thought but but he was a good guy he, he was he was super pleasant to work with and he's still pleasant he came in before he before he left town and bought some versace for ciara and you know you, you know i never gave him anything he had to pay retail you know now it's like with with celebs they all want everything for free but but i may but i you know i connected with people who would give him free things but i didn't so so why is that that's interesting they they asked even though they have the money right the money's not an issue really so asking for they're just used they're used to free you know because the brands will just dress that for any event how do they respond when you say no like we're not giving discount he he you know he's I'm not a brand. I mean, I'm my own brand. Yeah. But I'm not, you know, I'm not Versace or, you know, Cavalli or one of these big Italian brands. So, so it's, uh, you know, he was, he was very good. He had no problem with it. But eventually, the bigger he got and the more he could get for not paying, why did (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's not, not. So people were willing to give it to him. Yeah. But, you know, early on, that wasn't the case. So I'll share, this is a fun story, which will take up just a little time. No, let's hear it. So when he and Ciara had first started dating, you know, she would, uh, and they had one big event, what's the BETs, I think. Okay. They're down in, in LA. Okay. And it was their first red carpet event. And he needed clothes, you know. And so he called me and he's like, and and this was like, 10 days or what? So Wilson calls you, you know, he calls and says, I need clothes. I need, you know, I'm Scar doing this event, the BETs, and I need to look good. I'm like, and he loved Philip Klein. And again, Google Philip Klein's the king of bling, very over the top. And uh, makes Versace look conservative. And he loved Philip Klein. He wanted me to get him some Philip Klein. I'm like, you know, Russell, this is 10 days. You know, they're in Italy, you know. So it was a weekend, you know, so there's no way I was going to be able to even engage them until less than a week away. And I'm supposed to get all of this 
you know, score him clothes for the BET. Anyway, so we made it happen. So, so, (laughs) so Philip provided an outfit, you know, an ensemble, blazers and everything head to toe, Philip. And, uh, and so I had all of this stuff coming, I think about 20 grand worth of product coming from, from Italy that they were next staying out so that I could dress Russell because he was up and coming and then they thought that would be really cool. And we did get him on the on the uh on the best dressed list that year. No way. It looks good. 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 But I had all this product and he's like, Well, can you just send it to Ciara's girlfriend's house in LA? And I'm like, No, Russell, I'm not going to send twenty thousand dollars of product at cost to you Ciara's girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Russell, you're awesome. I'm like, I'm like, call your friends at Alaska Airlines and fly me down. I'll bring it to you. And so he did. And so he flew flew me down there, me and his bodyguard, Pate, who in- incidentally is also LDS. Uh, and uh, we had a good time it was fun. Uh, flying down to LA and getting him dressed for for the BETs. But so they so we had all this product and we got him in the right sizes and the right coats and the right shoes and all of this. And and he picked what he liked the best. And there was a pair of shoes, a pair of these velvet slippers with a crown on it. And, you know, he, he has his little deal where everyone's a king and it's a this crown was really sentimental to him. He wanted these velvet dress slippers so bad. And so we put him in the we put him in the shoes. And put the whole thing together, and then he had to go down to Ciara's suite, you know, to make sure that Ciara and her people approved of the outfit because it wasn't about Russell and it was about Ciara because he was doing a big Janet Jackson tribute and so on and so forth. And he was just arm candy for Ciara at that time. So we get down there, and she had some Swedish stylist who was, I think, maybe. 20 years old, you know, your age, you know, who did not like the, he went into the suite and he disappeared for like 15 minutes. I'm like, are you nervous? No, standing at the hall. I'm like, yeah, what's going on? You know, and, and he comes in, he's like, she doesn't like the shoes. Doesn't like the shoes. I'm like, okay, well, wear your own, (laughs) you know, it's like, but, but, you know, it's like, so, so the, uh, the, the young blonde stylist did not like my shoes, and so then there was this this kind of interaction between her and me and the and the showrunners, and they were like, "No, we love the shoes, we love the shoes," but but I I think they didn't want to show up. Cr, I think he looked too good, so she was a little bit too. She didn't want him to be too too fantastic, just fantastic enough. Anyway, so I told down he, the shoes got cut and he had to wear his own shoes. Ooh. So I said, well, you know, if you don't wear the shoes, I can't give them to you. You know, because the brand, you know, Philip was providing the clothes. And so he gets to keep the clothes, right? Uh-huh. So this is where it all begins, all the for begins. And, uh, and I was like, really, you don't wear the shoes, you can't have them. And so I took the shoes with me back on the plate. Oh, my God. <laughs> that night, no way. So... And then, uh, and then it was like, I ah, give him the shoes. And so I went over the, uh, went over to his home here in, in South Bellevue on the water. I think that 
uh, we were dressing Ciara for some Seahawk event and, and he'd like climb and say, Ciara needs a dress. And I'd run around to all the stores and collect all these dresses for Ciara. And then we'd go over and, and, and dress Ciara. And, and uh, anyway, so I took the shoes back, but I knew they were a sore spot with Ciara. So I, you know, I said, I have the shoes. And he says, you can have them. And he took those shoes and he snuck into the closet. He hid them. I'm sure he still wears those shoes. Oh, no doubt. But anyway, so that's my. Oh, my God. I mean, we have a lot of athletes and we have a lot of musicians. You know, we t- tend to get, you know, musicians and athletes and people who think they're celebrities. So, you know, everyone who shops me thinks they're a celebrity. We need that. Turns a celebrity in their own mind. You'd be very surprised. People think everyone who shops me is like a lady who lunches or something and. And they're just a bunch of really quirky, entertaining people. Interesting. Yeah. So while there are celebrity and glamorous people who shop me, you know, a lot of my core customers are, are not, wow. you know, are not celebrities. And my best client shops me every two weeks. He's 70 years old. An mm-hmm. old guy. And he is just like, he just loves his Versace and his Philip Pline. And I see, see him every, he, he buys every two weeks. On the, I mean, every like clockwork, he calls me every day. I think he was there because he tells me I'm cheaper than there. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I so I look at the store here, and it's it's such a unique customer, right? So it's really arguable. It's like, is it hard finding those customers? I guess not for you because you had the clients already. But what is that like? Like, who's your ideal customer? Oh my gosh, but um. Number one, it doesn't take a lot of customers. It just takes a few of the right <laughs> customers. And they just keep going. You know, back. people are always coming. I'm so quiet. Because I guess on the list, you don't need a line at the counter. Yeah. As much as you just need one really good customer. Because what's the average price of something in here for the listeners that oh my don't God. know? My average price point, I think Diana could tell me exactly what this is because she's the number yeah. lady. I think my average sale is... And my average sale is like six or seven hundred dollars. Yeah. So you only need a camera. You know, and that's you know, that includes our online business, but our in store average item is higher. Okay. But yeah, so it's not an expensive product. So it doesn't take a lot of people. It just takes the right people. And and really I think the reason I've been also one of the reasons I've also been successful is because I entertain people, you know, and I think that in, at this level of retail entertainment is, is part of the package. Yeah. And, and if you come in and I take care of you and entertain you, it's a lot more fun than trying to do it online, you know, or, or, uh, you know, do it at a department store. You might not get the same personal attention you get with me. Yeah. But, uh, it's, uh, but I really kind of think of it as entertainment. I provide entertainment for people. I make people happy. You know, they feel good when they when they walk out of here and they feel good when they get attention from looking good mm-hmm. and they come back for more. Guys are really easy, especially, you know, it's like, mm-hmm. oh, they'll use one compliment in their mind for life. You know, so I mean, <laughs> you, know, I know. you know, it's so true because it's rare. It's like, oh my gosh, she's so mad. What do you do? Like, I didn't more. Yeah. And they'll come back, you know, so it's... Uh, it's a relationship thing, but but the customer is constantly changing. So, you know, you've also got to be in this business, be pretty nimble. You know, and there aren't very many specialty stores or boutiques left out there. 
you know, it's really the the dynamic in retail has really become about the brands. Yeah. And the brands have deliberately made it so they don't really like to have their brands in other stores other than their own. Really? And in most cases, they won't sell other people only their own. So that's why you see, for example, you don't see Versace in many specialty stores. You know, everyone thinks I'm a Versace store because it's... um you know, because everyone, they come in and they look around, they're like, what is this place? I don't understand. You know, it's like, I'm a multi-brand boutique. What? I'm like, we carry multiple brands. And they don't understand it. And, and it's because there aren't many of us because they're all out of business. But it's all, the brands really want to control everything. The Europeans and the Italians are control freaks. So they want to control all of the marketing, all the narrative, what lands in the stores, when it lands in store, when it's marked down, they want to control everything. And they can't do that with, with, you know, with stores that aren't their own. So, so you come to a shopping center like the Bravern here, and every store except us is a company store. So we're the only, we're the only multi-brand operation here. You know, I have Gucci, I have Prada, I have Louis, I have Hermes, you know, I have all these big... Uh, luxury brands and they're all their company stores. So people are confused. They look at the name. They're like, oh, what is this? Um, and they don't, they don't get it. So I have to educate. But once they get into the door, they're hooked, right? Because you give them that personal touch and there's more you can offer with it. There's a brink lake. Yeah. I mean, you know, for me, the great thing about specialty stores is that I get to go out and I get to pick the things I like from every collection, you know, because, you know, every collection is not super strong every season. You know, if you were going into work Versace, you know, they may not have good pants that season. They may not have good hoodies or whatever. You know, there may be categories they're missing. But if that's the only store, the only product you're buying and putting in your store, you have to put the bad stuff in because yeah. that's your only option. Yeah. But if you're a multi-brand store, you know, I can kind of shuck and jive and move around and, and buy the best categories from everyone. Or if a collection doesn't look strong one season, I don't buy a lot of it and I buy more of another one. So, and, and the product in the store is really a reflection of the proprietor, you know, in this type of a environment, right? So if you have a multi-brand store, it can't help but be a reflection of, of the taste level of, the, of he or she who is buying it. And so, you know, the, you know, this store is obviously a reflection of me and, and Diana and, and, people who really like that and are drawn to that, they're going to embrace it. You know, it's not for everyone again, but you know, I can put you in a basic black suit over here. That's not what I'm known for, but I can do it. It's a cool black suit. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, uh, I don't know how I got on that sake on that topic. Yeah. But no, I mean, it's, it's so cool being here in the store. I mean, for, for the guys that see the video right now, it's, it's inspiring because um, it's cool that over time you've built up the clientele that trust you and that come back. I think a huge lesson for the young hustlers out there. I mean, look at David. So he started working at, for a company, a store. He learned the ins and outs of it. He was a salesman and just crushing it, working with different NFL players, whatever. They trusted him to where he can actually go and open his own gig. Because oftentimes I feel like we get so excited in business, like you're saying, that we just want to jump into something that we have no experience in and put up a lot of money and time when really 
the pattern that we found with successful entrepreneurs is that they get in, they learn the business, the ins and outs, and then they go do their own thing. So wise and so well said. People come to me all the time. How do I do this? How do I start this? You know? And I'm always like, go to work for someone. Yes. You know, get okay. your hands dirty. You know, it's like, go sell clothes. And most most people of your generation are not down with that. You know, I mean, they want it now. And they all think they're going to become, a, you know, a star, yeah. you know, without having to really get any experience. So, you know, everyone's an influencer. You know, and they started back way with, um, way back with like Project Runway. This was like before when you were a toddler or something. Yeah, you know, and I used to always call it like, you know, Project Runway Syndrome. You know, you'd get, people think that the only thing that, people tend to value in fashion is if you can be cranky, wear a jaunty scarf, and have a borderline personality, you know, <laughs> versus having any experience. You know, it's not just about putting on the attitude and telling everyone that you know, you know, okay, you're an influencer. Why are you an influencer? And where's your credibility? To, to my way of thinking, I'm like, do you have any experience in the business? Most not. You know, most have never worked a day in retail. Most have never worked for a collection, you know. And it's the same thing with people who want to be designers. They come to me and say, well, how do I get into the design business? I'm going to go work for free for a few years because that's what you're going to have to do. Move to New York, mm -hmm. move to L.A., but... New York, move to New York and go to work for someone and you'll probably have to intern for free and get your foot in the door and work for someone and figure out how it goes. But no one is willing to do that. You know, they just want to make clothes in their garage and and wait for Anna Wintour to come down in her cherry to fire and crown them the next great thing. And it won't happen. No. You know, as much as we think it, it, as much as we like to dream and I don't like to crush dreams, but, you know, it's like it's not going to happen from your basement in, in suburbia somewhere. Oh, you know, you got to work in the business. If you want to run a business, if you want to run a retail business, you should work in retail. <laughs> Simple yeah. though. If you want to be a designer, you better work for a designer. And you may have to work for free because, you know, no one new in this business gets paid a lot of money. So you're going to have to sacrifice, you're going to have to work for free, and you're going to have to find a way to make it work until you have the experience and people see your talent and promote you. Mm. I mean, really, if you want to operate at this level rather than just dressing your friends for fun, you know, you're going to have to. You're going to have to go and learn how to do it, and that requires working in the industry whether it's in design or retail or whatever business you're in, really, I'm sure it applies to every business, but very specifically to this business. Yeah, you, know, you gotta, you gotta do it. Yeah, learn from the people who are doing. It. Yeah, it's true. Like, which seems so obvious to me, but yeah. it's it, it. But we also do. We feel like we want to just skip over that step. Yeah, and get to the very top when that does not work in anything. Like, very rarely can you just really jumped, you know, create success that fast, like overnight rarely ever happens but we see it on social media but it's not in my opinion it's not true like there's no way there's a lot of smoke and mirrors out there yeah and everyone is a celebrity and everyone is an influencer 
but you know, it's a, I don't know. It's a, it's a, can be a source of frustration. Yeah. I think. So if, if you're sitting, imagine you're sitting in my seat right now and you're 20 years old and even all the young customers that are listening, you're in their shoes. Uh, they're getting ready to jump into business. They're super hungry. What advice would you give them? Well, go to work in the industry that you're passionate about. You know, if there's some specific, you know, business that you're passionate about, you should go to work in it. And then you should be open to opportunities because I think that is, that's how I did it. So I can only speak about how I do it you know, to the point of this conversation, I guess. But, you know, it's like, I was good at seeing an opportunity when it presented itself. And you have to put yourself in a position to be available to those opportunities. Mm -hmm. You know, people always talk about getting famous and it's like, this has been the right place at the right time. And there's a lot to be said for that when you have to be in the right place at the right time, but you have to be ready when you see the opportunity. So put yourself in a position where you're working in the industry you're passionate about and then be open to opportunities. And when you see an opportunity, seek the opportunity. And it may not be the path you, you know, you have in your mind's eye. It might be a different path, but it may get you to the same place. Uh -huh. You just have to be open to taking the opportunities as they present themselves. Yeah. And, and if the opportunity presents itself, uh, for me, it, it, it was always when the opportunity presented itself, and I dove and I took that opportunity. It was always successful because I never, I never really operated in a way that it was like, this is my only path. This is the only thing I'm going to do. This is what I want to do. This is it's not, it's not do it. And, and right. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to stray from that, from that path or that vision of what I want to do. And some people may take issue with me on this, but. But I think it's great to have a vision and a dream and have a point of view. Mm -hmm. But you got to kind of create your own path to get there and not be so rigid about how you think you should do it mm -hmm. and how you think you should do it. And I might be wrong. Yeah. You know, we're often wrong. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And, and the reason we're still in business is because every time the retail landscape changes, which is like every year or every two years, we become something different. You pivot. You know, most things don't. You like know, that. I just tell people, I just keep on dancing and I just keep on changing, you know? And so, you know, if I was a conservative classic menswear store that sold, you know, you know, 10, 15 suits a day in one, in one incarnation, then I become a streetwear store where I'm selling $1,500 hoodies you know, to, to urban customers through the, through the pandemic, you know, I mean, they're completely opposite realms. And a lot of people went out, out of business, for example, during the, during the pandemic, because they just saw that this was their way. This yeah. is the kind of store I am. Yeah. I'm a menswear store and I sell blazers and suits. Well, no one's wearing them anymore. So, you know, they close because they're so unable to adapt you know, so, oh, I'm too old to change. I am super old, but, you know, I keep changing, you know. And so, I mean, if you're not, if you're, you can't, 
you can't lock yourself into one path, mm -hmm. you know, and if you're unwilling to change, you're going to find yourself out of work or out of a job or not doing what you do and be bitter and sad, mm -hmm. you know? So, I mean, you got to be able to be flexible, cheerfully flexible, cheerfully flexible, you know, because you just, everything changes. My customers change every year. I don't know. You know, sometimes people are like, well, who is your customer? Like, heck, I don't know. Whoever comes in. It's like whoever darkens my doorway. Yes. But, you know, it's it's hard because it's ever-changing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the cust I have a few customers who've been with me since the beginning. Very few. But, you know, you've always got to be picking up new customers yeah. because people fall off. In our business, in luxury fashion, it's very cyclical. You know, everyone is not your number one customer every year for the entire life of your business. Mm -hmm. People buy clothes in cycles. People are all about their clothes, primarily when they're single and they're dating. And uh, yeah, as soon as people get married, I lose them. Really? It's a reality. You know, once, they, once they're off the market, you know, they don't care anymore. Yeah, they still the deal. You know, clothing, clothing becomes about... I'm not saying anything important, but, but, you know, I mean, clothing is really part of the courting process, Yeah, you know, and you want to look hot. You want to look your best, you uh -huh. want good. A lot of men buy a lot of clothes for their, their intended and the people that they are, you know, that they are wooing. And then once the ring's on it, that stops, <laughs> you know, it, it, it. You know, so you can't get them looking too good or else you're going to lose them. Yeah. And you have to be careful because, yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a, well, that's a whole different story. But, you know, you always got to be cognizant of that. But, you know, but you lose people. My, my point is, is that people shop for a few years and then they don't shop. Mm -hmm. You always, and if you're just going to hang your hat on the people who shopped with me 15 years ago, again, you know, you need fresh blood. You need new people. You need to always be nurturing new people and seeking out new people. And the long-term people support you while you find the new people. Then you have new people, and they support you so you find new people. And it's all a cyclical thing. Mm -hmm. But you have to keep moving. You have to keep changing. That's me. Man, so so here's a theme I see with you, David, that I'm learning. So a lot of times with, with people in, in business, especially young hustlers, they see an opportunity and they get paralysis by analysis, right? They 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 see it, but a lot of times we overthink and we're like, oh, do I really, should I quit my job? Should I take the jump? Should I invest the money? Um, and they just don't take any action because they're so scared. But with you and with your philosophy of just going after every opportunity, you just make the jump and you just figure it out as you go. And you actually take action, right? You're not stuck by paralysis by analysis. So how, how, where did that come from? Like, how are you so confident when these new opportunities arise? And like, I guess for the young hustlers out there, it's like when they get scared, like how do they just jump into those opportunities? Sorry, turn off my phone here. Um, good question. Fear. <laughs> uh, I, I am fearful. Yeah, I am not, I am not without fear, you know, but I, you know, I saw it, you know, I took the opportunity when practically I saw that it, 
would reward me. You know, I mean, I mean, yeah. It's like when I jumped at the opportunity to own my own store again. It wasn't that I always had a dream of having my own store. It's that I saw the opportunity and I knew that I couldn't get too burned too bad going into it because I knew I could sell something. Yeah. Okay. So I knew at the end of the day, my my biggest asset was my ability to sell stuff. As long as I could get the stuff and I could sell it, I was protected. Mm-hmm. You know, so I guess you know, when taking the opportunity and seeing the opportunity and being fearless about that, I think you need to, you know, temper that with knowing the skill set you have. Yes. And knowing what, that you can take that jump and still be protected. Because I'm a little bit practical too, you know. So, I mean, I don't know. Yeah. Beautiful. I I love doing things myself. Uh huh. And it sounds like why I didn't seek out, why I was not a successful musical theater person because I hate the audition process. Yeah. Which is constantly like everyone, like, yeah, it's a a challenge. Mm -hmm. It sounds like it's because, from what I hear, you have confidence in yourself because of your expertise and what you're good at, your skill set, right? Just like you're saying with the clothes, like, look, I know if I can get these clothes and I already have the clients and I'll sell. I used to find a way to get the clothes and I'll, my store will do great. Right. No problem. Yeah. I mean, it was, you know, you can, you need to be able to come up with the, with the financing for a business typically. I mean, that's you, you, a huge challenge for most folk. Um, and when we opened the business, we were, my, my wife was really good at connecting and we were able to, we had, you know, between our own assets and uh, our ability to get people to help us we were able to we never had to borrow money to open the business but we had had people who helped you know underwrite our lines of credit yeah and that is the biggest challenge in in any business is making sure you have cash flow and you can pay your bill but you can't pay your bills if you can't sell anything Uh, you know so that's why that was your role you know that is that is just the way of the world, you know, and we are all selling something, you know, people come to me and say, oh, I don't like sales. I said, yeah, everyone's selling something. You know, you may not like to acknowledge it, but everyone's selling something, you know. I'm a brazen salesperson, but a lot of people don't, you know, I, you know, I get new salespeople who I train. I've trained half the people in this city. Yeah. And, you know, I always counsel them about having poor retail self-image you know i mean they think they're just a salesperson you know they they they're like almost ashamed of being a salesperson i'm like what are you ashamed of you know i mean it's like this is a it is it's not an easy thing for most people Mm -hmm. wow so many gems so before i'm getting a tangent no no this is amazing learning so much so before we wrap up how can my listeners support and serve you and what you got going on go to david-lawrence.com you can see everything i have there you go yeah very cool are you on social media we are we are david lawrence co on instagram and we have facebook too i should know what that is okay <laughs> well we'll tag you we'll, 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 we'll tag it you're just a salesman dude you're right out there the selling yeah front man you're in the battle yeah i always tell people i just uh 
I just sell pretty clothes and Diana makes it all profitable. He handles <laughs> all of the uh, all the uh, the hard stuff. That, that's not good at it. At, at, yeah. And she's really good. That's how you do it. You find exactly what you're good at and you're passionate about, and you just go all in on it, right? Yeah, with the 10x. It is important to have partners who who support you on that. So, uh-huh. I mean, if you know, if you have people, you know, Dan and I make a great team. Dan is great in the store, too, and she's a great salesman, but she really supports me in the, you know, and keeping me out where I'm the most of her time. She's out of the store, and she's, she's yeah. in the books. So that, she's awesome. So good. Yeah, and got to have that. Yeah. Okay, so last question. If you can prescribe, I always imagine this, you can prescribe anything to the entire world, and they have to do it for 30 days. What would you have them do? So it's like it's some kind of habit. <laughs> That's a hard question. Yeah, it's, it's a good one. Something to do every day. Yeah, so every day. If you could prescribe anything to the entire world and they literally have to do it for 30 days, what would you prescribe them to do? Oh, man, alive. You didn't prepare me for this. (laughs) (laughs) This is kind of whatever. Oh, my God. Yeah. Maybe something that's helped you in your life. Doing every day. Well, outside of the basics of... Of a, a prayer and scripture song, chorus. <laughs> I mean, you know, those are all there. Yeah. Why is that? Because uh, I've had a lot of people say that same thing. Uh, you know, it's hard to do. Yes. It's good to do things that are hard. It's hard to do that consistently. But I think it just kind of centers you and puts you in a, you know, I, you know, I, I try and exercise every day. I do yoga, and you know, I, I try to. Do and that keeps you physically fit, but I think that the the spiritual aspects kind of keep you spiritually fit, if you will. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you know doing the doing the spiritual things every day would be an ideal that I I aspire to, to try and do that every day, and I'm not very good at it. But but I think that it would help if I was as diligent about that as I was about exercising. Maybe I would. Be a much more successful person. Does it does it feel like at least for me, like with business, I get so like into it and so focused that a lot of times the spiritual side I, I lack on. But I feel like when I'm focused on the spiritual side, it really grounds me for sure on business. Do you feel that as well? Yeah, it's up for you. I mean it helps you keep your focus and keeps you focused on what's important. <laughs>